The Science of Measurement, a tool for domination and control? Measurement in this sense, particularly of land, it's this tool of domination, it's this tool of control. It allows people to say, not only it allows on a practical level the sort of divvying up of resources, but on a conceptual, intellectual level, it allowed the colonizers to imagine the land as if it was already theirs. If you can look up something on a map and go, hey, that's where I'm going to live, that gives you this justification. And obviously, this isn't, I, don't, I really, really don't want to oversimplify this subject because obviously there's a lot of, <laughs> lot of reasons that led to the, the sort of genocide and the, the really horrific things that were done during that process. Um, but measurement was part of that. It was part of that toolkit. That's James Vincent. We talk with him about his book, Beyond Measure, The Hidden History of Measurement from Qubits to Quantum Constants. Then we replay an excerpt from our interview with Simon Winchester about his book, Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on the station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Humans have been measuring things since time immemorial, from the earliest hash marks on bone, possibly to count hunting kills, to the advanced algorithms of today. Measurement is a way of bringing order and control to our world. A good thing, right? But it also has been used to impose domination on people and on the natural world or to exclude some considerations in favor of others. Think of how GDP measures economic growth, but not the devastation untrammeled growth is wreaking on our planet. My guest James Vincent examines the history and the consequences of measurement in his fascinating book, Beyond Measure, The Hidden History of Measurement from Qubits to Quantum Constants. Vincent is a journalist and writer from London who's written for numerous publications, including The Independent, The Financial Times, and Wired. He's currently a senior reporter for The Verge. Beyond Measure is his first book. James Vincent, welcome to Writer's Voice. Francesca, thank you so much for having me. Beyond Measure, uh, this is a fascinating book about a subject I think many of us have probably given little or no thought to, including myself. Why does the history of measurement or metrics matter? It matters because, as you say, we give little thought to it. Um, measurement is something that is overlooked, that is, I think, dismissed or, you know, sort of caricatured uh, as something of interest only to pedants and, <laughs> you know, to people who are always watching the scales and the numbers and uh, are missing what is real about life. But I sort of got into the subject and, uh, you know, I had all these questions and it took me deeper and deeper into the history of it. And I realized that measurement is something that is, as I say in the book, really essential to civilization. Um, and it's essential not just to the sort of practical realities of civilization, to things like, you know, architecture and trade and scientific research and the, the sharing of knowledge. But I think it's also essential to sort of human cognition. It is a sort of, it's one of these key tools that we don't 
often consider but really structures how we look at the world you know measurement is it's about comparing reality it's about structuring knowledge and therefore it's a tool that really helps us navigate the world around us and so for that reason deserves far more attention than it currently gets you actually start pretty far back people could say pre-civilization with hash marks on an antelope bone yeah, well, on, on several different bones. I think there is a wolf bone. There is a a gibbon, a gibbon bone, I believe. I'm a bit of a completionist, you know. So whenever I start looking at a subject, I'm always like, right, how far back can we take this? What is the actual first, the the origin point of this? And for measurement, where I landed eventually was on these bones, as you say. So these are archaeological artifacts that range in age from you know 30,000 to 60,000 years old some of them and because they are so old because they're prehistory we don't quite know what they were created for but they are bones with series of markings on them that are too too neatly arranged to necessarily be haphazard they've obviously been marked with these incisions with these cuts for a purpose now now what exactly that purpose is is not clear they could certainly be decorative but the sort of the interpretations that I read suggested that they could have had another cognitive purpose which I would put down as counting Uh, what they were counting we're not sure either but for me that marks the first measurement the first time where you know humans proto-humans early humans were looking at the world around them and they needed to record something about it and they could no longer trust their brain to do that necessarily so they wanted to create a physical record as well and I think that's a very important part of measurement that it's something that's done with the hand and the eye that it's not something that's purely cognitive it's something that you need sort of tools for. And yet you say that if you were to summarize the history of measurement in a single sentence it would be as a history of increasing abstraction in fact getting away from the hand and the eye so say more about that oh well you really you really caught me out there <laughs> you're very, you're very very right and yeah this is a bit of a contradiction within the history of measurement and you know i talk about the early history of measurement that it is something very physical very practical that you know we are we are measuring things that are essential to our well-being you know i talk about measuring food you know food to eat soil to till cloth to wear and and, and this is you say my sort of my one sentence thesis is that the long history of measurement over you know let's say a 6000 year span which constitutes the you know the main body of my book um, and corresponds with uh, what we what we would think of as the short history of human civilization from settled urbanism up to the present day over that time period measurement increases in abstraction and what i mean by that is that it becomes something more mathematical in a way it becomes something that um sort of floats over the territory of the world again that sounds that sounds quite a you know a difficult way of capturing this but i I think about measurements increasing its territory so measurements used to be things that were very specific to a local region for example they would be you know you would have a unit of measurement that was used in this valley or in that town and then you would go over to the next one and they would use maybe the same name but it would have a slightly different value for a pint or a yard or whatever it was Um, and as uh, measurements become disconnected from their local place you know that, that brought them about they become more abstract and now we live in a world where you know, a measurement can be applied throughout the whole world. Uh, It can be applied, you know, in China, it can be applied in America. 
And I think the power of abstraction in that sense gives a greater territory, but it means we're very disconnected from these measures. And, you know, it, to make that a little bit more concrete, think about workplaces. Um, you know, I give the example towards the end of the book of Amazon's warehouses, where the movements of the workers are measured the time they take to load a cart, the time they take to unpack a shelf, all those are measured down to the second. And yet the, the people doing that measurement often have very little understanding of what it feels like to do that work. You know, the, the, the strain that goes into it and the, the bodily needs of that individual, whether that's an aching back or a full bladder, whatever it is. And so this is what I say, you know, you, you get the power of increasing abstraction in that you can measure something that allows you control over a distance, but it puts you at a distance. And that distance means that you often lose touch with the reality of that situation. So in the case of the Amazon warehouse worker, you know, they are worked like numbers on a spreadsheet and they're not worked like they're human beings. So <laughs> that's the long history of measurement, but I realize that's a, it's a lot to go over. Exactly. And, and that I think is really the philosophical heart of this book. You know, both the, I, I guess, what increasing abstraction allows and what it disallows. Yeah. You know, what's so interesting, I mean, just to go back to, you know, when measurement was connected more to actual reality, you know, we, we still have that, you know, in, in English, we use feet, you know, inches, feet, yards, very different from the metric system, which we'll get to in a minute. But you point out that even, you know, there were forms of measurement that really had to do with the actual use of, say, actual land, that some land, let's just say an acre, although I don't know if that's the proper term to use in this, would be measured in one way if the land was more fertile versus less fertile. Explain that. Yeah, so so that particular unit is um, a collop, uh, which is an old Irish unit for a measurement of land. But, you know, the collop is really only an example of a type. Um, and there were lots and lots of land units that followed this pattern, this dynamic, which, as you say, was, you know, about measuring something about the land, in this case, fertility uh, or abundance or whatever it was. So um, a collop was the amount of land needed to uh, graze a single cow. So, you know, when you think about how that works and what that means, it gives you more information about the land. So if you're selling someone 10 acres of land, sight unseen, let's say, you don't know what the contents of that land is. Is it a lush, fertile grassland? Is it, you know, barren hillside? Is it a wood? What might, what might it be? If you're selling someone 10 collops, you know for sure that uh that it's got that it's 10 it's it's enough to feed 10 cows that you've got enough land to graze 10 cows on um and so this was something this was a pattern we saw a lot within medieval europe which was you know the, a focus of my research due to limitations in language and things like that um where because these are agricultural societies a lot of the units of measurement for land reflect the agricultural productivity of them and this is not just true with collops and the you know fertility, but the acre is another example. You know, when you look at the history of how the acre was defined, it's it's based on this unit of length called the furlong, rather than a, a unit of area. Um, it's just a line, but a furlong is um, the length of uh, a field that a, um, an oxen can plow before it needs rest. 
<laughs> so it, it is a unit that is deeply tied to the habits, the productivity of the people who needed it. And uh, you get other examples, for example, in France, you get different ways of um, measuring land based on the amount of grain that can be sowed in it um, in a successful fashion. So if you have very sort of sparse soil, uh, which isn't going to support many crops, the unit changes in size. So, again, you are measuring not the physical coordinates, but you are measuring what matters to people, which is the agricultural potential of that land. The, the great thing about that is that it encodes information that is relevant to the people using those units. They want to know what that land can support and how much grain they can raise and if they can pay their taxes. What it's not useful for is the administrators. And this ties back into the point about abstraction in that if you are measuring that land in that way, uh, and you're, you know, you're the local lord or whatever. What you want is clear geographical divisions. You want to know where your land ends and where the next lord's land begins. And if you're doing that in collops or you're doing that in furlongs, then they might sort of fluctuate and it makes it a bit difficult. So measurements become more abstract with things like the meter um, in order to accommodate these new demands. Yeah, in fact, you say that the metric system, uh, jumping ahead a little bit, we'll jump back again, but um, that the metric system was like the most important transformation. Why was it? So the metric system was important for a number of reasons. One, in a sense, is sort of arbitrary in that we just got lucky in a way with it. And it was the system of measurement that became the global standard. And we can talk about the exceptions to that later on because they're very, very interesting. But it was important philosophically and politically as well. So the situation um, where the metric system came about was during Ancien Regime France in the run up to the revolution. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier with these these units, the, the, the system of measurement in France was sort of uh, based on, you know, all these sorts of jumble of units that often differed when you went from one town to another. Now, in some countries, that wasn't a huge problem. You know, um, in, in England, for example, there was a bit more, there'd just been a, a better history of um, standardizing things. But in France, it was particularly bad. And it was thought that there were, more, you know, roughly a quarter of a million quarter of a million different variants of units in Ancien Regime France at the time. Um, and for the people who were, you know, uh, trying to make the country prosperous, uh, that was very difficult. It meant that the economy was strained. It meant that trade was very difficult to do between different regions, and it really slowed everything down. And it also meant that there was exploitation based on these units because um, these local measures were often, you know, uh, defined by whoever the local lord was, the seigneur who, who owned the land. And they would often take advantage of the common folk of the peasantry with things like measurements of grain, which were used to pay taxes. So the peasants would use one bushel size in the market when they were trading amongst themselves. And the lord would use a, a larger bushel and connect, you know, collect more grain in order to exploit the, the, the workers on their land. So this led to not only economic friction, but political dissatisfaction. Uh, and there was this common slogan at the time in the run up to the revolution that what the people wanted was uh, one law, one king, one uh, weight and one measure. So th these things were really tied together that they wanted political equality, but that meant <laughs> metrological equality, measurement equality as well. 
So the metric system was created in order to um, solve a lot of these problems. But the, the big thing that made it very different is that it was abstracted a little bit. So um, instead of defining units using these old sorts of methods, which often used the body, or in this case, the king's body was, you know, often um, a unit of measurement was known as uh, in France, the pied du roi, literally the king's foot. And they replaced these sorts of standards of measurement with abstract and scientific, very rational ones. So for the unit of length, instead of the pied du roi, the king's foot, you had the meter. And the meter was defined using cutting edge science. And it was defined as one ten millionth of the distance from the North Pole to the equator. And that was measured using this huge seven year survey across um, continental Europe. But. So you have a sort of a clarity of standardization with the metric system, but you also have this political change and that instead of saying measurement is tied to these old systems, these old hierarchies of power, literally uh, a unit of length defined from the body of the king, the, you know, the bodily authority of the monarch. Instead of that, you have scientific definition, which is supposed to be freely accessible to all. So in this way, the metric system really embodied reflected reified amplified the ideals of the revolution itself it was about equality it was about accessibility and it was about fairness and these these qualities spread with the metric system itself if you've just joined writer's voice we're talking with james vincent about his book beyond measure the hidden history of measurement from qubits to quantum constants but in fact it also ended up being an instrument of control over the common people. Explain that. Well, the common people weren't always happy about the metric system. I say in the book that the French people were the first to adopt the metric system and often the first to reject it, which is true. They didn't like the changes that went along with it because this is something we see in the history of measurement, that when you try and adapt completely new systems, it's like changing your currency or changing, you know, your language or something, something very fundamental. People don't like the changes that go too far. And with the metric system, what happened was that the people who were, you know, who were putting forward the metric system got so carried away by this idea that by changing the standards, you could change the people, that they changed lots of other bits of life as well. And arguably, you know, any historian of the French Revolution will tell you they went a bit far. You know, you get to the point with the terror and the real, you know, real, you know, political upheaval that went with that, that it went too far. And what the, the revolutionaries did, they didn't just change the system of weights and measures. They also changed the calendar. So they got rid of the old Gregorian calendar and replaced it with a Republican calendar where you had these new names for all the months. And instead of seven day weeks, you had 10 day weeks. Uh, and the idea was to remove the influence of the church on everyday life because the, the, the Gregorian calendar was deeply tied to the sort of sacraments of the church and the festivals and the holy days. So they thought, get rid of the calendar, you get rid of the church. Then they went a step further after that and they thought, all right, let's have a go at time. So they replaced the 24 hour clock with a decimal clock, with a 10 hour clock. So instead of 24 hours in a day, you had 10 hours in a day with 100 minutes in each hour and 100 seconds in each minute. And it just it went on too far, basically. And I think this sort of pushed people over the edge. And eventually, obviously, in France, you have the, the reactionary counter revolutions. And then the metric system eventually comes back in the 1830s. Sorry, that's a long history there, uh, compressed quite tightly. <laughs> 
Now, talking about clocks, um, this was a real revolutionary thing. The invention of the mechanical clock. I remember a long time ago reading, what was the name of that wonderful uh, British historian who wrote about how by the using clocks, how it transformed work in yeah. Britain. Uh, E.P. Thompson, I think was, was his name, yeah. So, so talk about the invention of the mechanical clock and how that transformed society. Well, clocks and more well, time measurement itself. Um, there's this great quote by, um, by a historian named um, Crosby, I think Alfred Crosby, uh, and he says, you know, time for for a long time was a series of breadths rather than a series of points. I think it's a lovely, succinct way of saying it. And it's essentially the idea that time used to be more flexible, you know, that uh, before you had access to um, instruments that allowed you to quantify consistently the, the 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 passage of time the flow of time you would just divide up the day into sort of hours but that would change so what you'd do you'd have 12 hours between sunrise and sunset and then 12 hours in the night but obviously because of the changing seasons and the changing um time of, at which the sun rises and sets that meant that the hours themselves expanded and contracted and this is something which i think is sort of for me very conceptually similar to what I've said about uh, units of land measurement in that they sort of, they're flexible, right? They, 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 um, they breathe <laughs> in and out. They allow a little bit of flexibility into life. They're not so rigid and that allow, that's very useful in a way, but also very limiting in other ways. So uh, for a long time, this was the, the way you, you know, you would only have a very rough idea of what the time was. Noon would be uh, one obvious marker when the sun was direct overhead, but you wouldn't necessarily know. And what happens with the invention of mechanical clocks is that we suddenly have a way of consistently marking the hours. And these first became useful in Europe. Um, there's a, there is a different history in the East, and particularly in China, which was way ahead of Europeans for a long time. And obviously in so many types of um, scientific research and technology and astronomy, but also in clocks. But clocks really took off in Europe. Um, they were first embedded in monasteries. Uh, where they would be used to not only mark up the day in terms of um, secular duties of the monks, you know, the work that they had to do, whether that was tending to the fields, whether that was working on the manuscripts, but also marking out the hours of worship. Um, so there was this religious prerogative uh, for monks to really know what hour it was in order to do the right, uh, you know, re uh, religious observations. <laughs> This became sort of a, a centerpiece within towns. You know, you, you, your church would have the perhaps the only clock in your village. That would be the that would be what would mark the hours, and you would know vaguely based on that what time it was. Um, as the uh, the technology improved, towns began to build ever more elaborate clocks and ever more you know they, they would become a sort of public monument and you can often see this if you travel around Europe you know you go to these wonderful towns in Germany or, or in the Netherlands or Belgium places like that where you see these beautiful immensely complex astronomical clocks which are often funded or you know the subscriptions are raised for them because people think it will be good for the town <laughs> they think it will add to the productivity that if everyone knows what time it is then hey if you're a merchant and you're meeting meeting down at the market you know what time to meet so it's it you know it's, it's public infrastructure in a way it's like having public transport or something like that 
Now, as the, as this goes on, the technology improves even further and you get clocks with minute hands and second hands and these become miniaturized and ever smaller. And the idea is that this is entirely necessary for a, a sort of a capitalist mode of production. Uh, it's not just about um, this idea of, you know, Weber would talk about in the Puritan work ethic where, you know, it's about efficiency and using every hour in the day fully, but it's also about organizing people. You know, the clock is necessary to do things like organize shifts. And again, there is this difference, this increasing abstraction between pre-industrial measurement and then post-industrial measurement. So you might think of something like uh, another unit of land um, that was used in Germany was the tag work, which means the day work. And it's just the amount of fields that you can plow in a day. So you might have a, a unit of measurement there, which is like, well, how much work are we going to get done today? Well, it just depends, you know, what, on what the field is like. And we'll, we'll do however many tag works we do. Or we'll do one tag work because that'll be all we can manage. But then you get clocks and then you get to manage these this time more closely. And you can, you know, you can really call people in and out. So it's all about management of people in a way, the development of timekeeping. Now, it's not just about management of people, but also domination of nature. James Vincent, in this book, Beyond Measure, you talk about, you know, the kind of passion for measurement in the uh, that began in the 18th century in Sweden with clocks with with measuring everything and it was all about the domination of nature connect the dots on that for us well one of the things i talk about i think i've talked about it quite a lot this interview in particular uh, is land measurement and this is something that becomes essential in colonial projects in this time that, you know, cartography, the measurement of land, the creating of maps is this essential tool for colonial control, uh, and which is, a, you know, a form of domination of nature as well. So, uh, you know, measurement obviously helps to marshal resources. And again, yeah, I, as you mentioned, I talk about it starting in Sweden, but really it's a European wide phenomena. And it's something that we see really with the emerging empires in the in the 18th and 19th century in particular so you see this in america and you see this in uh with great britain as well so one of the first big land mapping projects that's ever you know the, the most accurate and the biggest one ever done is when england wants to invade and conquer ireland and they do what's called the down survey which gives this hugely detailed map using these skills that English surveyors have developed in order to map out, you know, the entirety of the island of Ireland. And the reason for doing this is for domination, because without a map, how do you know when to send your troops? Without a map, how do you know what land you're taking off who? Without a map, how do you know where the resources are? So the British do this, obviously, because they are, you know, one of the dominant imperial powers during this time. And they do it in India as well with the uh, um, the Great Indian Survey. But the Americans do it as well. And the, I, I found the sort of American example particularly interesting because there was this clash between different conceptions of land between the American colonizers. And so at this point, I'm talking about 13 colonies moving west into continental America. And their clash with the people who were living there, the Native Americans, who have a quite different conception of how you divvy up land. Now, 
I don't want to caricature this too much. It's not black and white in that the Western, uh, Western forces had one idea of land and the Native Americans had another idea of land. There was a lot more give and take than that. However, broadly speaking, you know, for Native American tribes, land was often about resources. So it was about following, for example, the migration of animals, or it was about access to water, or it was about access to timber. Um, and there's also a greater spiritual importance placed on land. Uh, land is something that is deeply tied to ancestral memory, to your ancestors and to your history as a people. And then the new colonizers come in and their version of land is based on these, this abstract version, which is just about measuring it on a grid. And, and the big thing that happens here is the land survey, the grid survey, which is sort of um, spearheaded by Thomas Jefferson. Um, which divides the land up into these uh, very consistent lots. And you can see that, you know, you get on an airplane, you fly over um, the Midwest or whatever it is, you see the farmland divided up into these very neat squares. And what that allowed was the United States, in order to, you know, to fund its, its, its expansionary project West, to sell the land. So you could have settlers, colonialists, who would look up their land on a, on a grid somewhere in this town and they'd be like right that land is now ours and then that would be used as a justification in order to force out the people who were actually living there already so land measurement in this sense particularly of land is yes it's this tool of domination it's this tool of control it allows people to say not only it allows on a practical level the sort of divvying up of resources but on a conceptual intellectual level it allowed the colonizers to imagine the land as if it was already theirs if you can look at something on a map and go, hey, that's where I'm going to live, that gives you this justification. And obviously, this isn't, I don't, I really, really don't want to oversimplify this subject because obviously there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of reasons that led to the, the sort of genocide and the, the really horrific things that were done during that process. Um, but measurement was part of that, it was part of that toolkit. Let's fast forward now to the modern day. Um, we've interviewed authors on this show about the increasing dominance of algorithms and how problematic they are as forms of surveillance and control. You talk about, you know, our foundational principle of modern life seems to be measurement. Talk about what, what does that mean for us? It, it almost seems as if we're really losing control over our measurements. Yeah, which I think it's so ironic because measurement is supposed to be this tool of control. I think when we look at the long history of measurement, it's been, as I say, fantastically useful. It's been this foundational civilizational tool and it takes on a preeminence with the scientific revolution from, say, you know, 1500s, 1600s onwards, when people realized that in order to do experiments, uh, you need measurement and that helps you produce sort of reliable knowledge about the world. And now we've got to the point where measurement is so esteemed as a, a, a way of producing knowledge and a way of control that we often focus too much on measurement rather than the underlying goal. There's a, there's a brilliant historian who I sort of, I ended up citing um, quite a bit in, the, in, the, in this final spectrum in the book called Jerry Mueller. And he talks about what he calls metric fixation, which I think is a concept that people are innately familiar with but they don't necessarily recognize and it's when you over fixate on the measurement 
rather than what you're trying to achieve. And if you, if you think about this, you will see examples of it in, 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 in your life, whether that is in education, whether that is in healthcare, whether that is in policing. So in, in education, for example, my mum was a secondary school teacher and she, you know, she used to say how much time they spent trying to teach children the test answers rather than the skills that the test was trying to test. And, you know, I think this is something we see in all our lives. It's like the problem with abstraction I talked about with the Amazon warehouse workers, but you get it with things like KPIs, key performance indicators, where your manager in your work wants to have some way of judging the merit of what you do. So they will pick a metric, uh, but that often leads to bad side effects. So, you know, my example is I'm, I'm a journalist by trade and i've worked in a lot of places over the years and some of my early jobs not my not my current jobs very different but my early jobs were very much focused on clicks you know there is this very poisonous cycle within the media industry where people were trying to create articles in order to you know to get traffic because that traffic drove advertisers and that advertisements that was drove what was, what was driving revenue so people would go okay so how do we know how well the story is doing well we'll see how many clicks it gets and this leads to sensationalist clickbait where people are only trying to optimize this single measurement and they're forgetting what the point of that measurement was the point of that measurement was to create a sustainable news industry because the news industry delivers so many useful things to society, but people fixate on the measurement too much and you get this horrible side effect. And I think this is something that if we look at in, um, you know, your listeners, if they look at it in their own lives, they will find examples. And so this is what I mean about the sort of uh, the noxious, the toxic effects of abstraction is that measuring clicks is a form of abstraction because it's supposed to be a proxy for something else, which is, you know, what makes the news useful or interesting to read. But it ends up being twisted into another sort of metric altogether, and it ends up hurting the thing you're trying to help. That's a great example. So finally, we think of measurement as something kind of somehow immutable, somehow outside of human agency. But you point to the chance nature of so much of the development of measurement throughout history. And measurement is how we choose to look at some things and choose other things not to look at. You know, I think of the difference between the gross national product versus Bhutan's index of gross domestic happiness. Yes, yeah. So uh, talk about how can we regain control over measurement? I think it's just to do away with the measurement for a second. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not anti-measurement. Uh, I think, you know, the book is very much an exploration of its successes and its failings. But you need to sometimes step back from it and think about what the goal is you're trying to support. I love that comparison of GDP and Bhutan's sort of measurement of happiness. Because it is, you know, GDP is just a tool used by economists. The, the history of it is very interesting. You know, it starts off sort of relatively obscure. People still argue today about exactly what should be folded into GDP. And yet it has taken on this symbolic importance. And if, if, if it looks like it's contracting, then, you know, growth is going down or whatever it might be, then obviously alarm bells start ringing. And there's, there's important reasons for that. There's a reason why we need these shorthands, because we live in this hugely, hugely complex world where we need little numbers, little gauges that can give us a little grip on what is going on. 
but we have to remember what it is we're trying to achieve. So it's not just about the measurement. It's about what you're trying to measure. That's a beautiful answer. And certainly I would prefer uh, gross domestic happiness as a guide to the economy rather than GDP, which also will measure <laughs> such destructive things like war and, and the war exactly. machine. Well, James Vincent, it's a fascinating book, Beyond Measure, and beautifully written, by the way. It was really terrific read. The Hidden History of Measurement from Qubits to Quantum Constants. Thank you so much for talking with us here about it. Thank you, Francesca. It's been a real pleasure. James Vincent. Go to writersvoice.net to read an excerpt from his book. Next up, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World. Stay tuned after the break. There are 10 millimeters in a centimeter, a hundred centimeters in a meter, a thousand meters in a kilometer. There are 12 inches in a foot, three feet in a yard. 1,760 yards in a mile There are a thousand grams in a kilo 16 ounces in a pound 14 pounds in a stone So now you know That was the Measurement Song written and performed by A.J. Jenkins. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Go to writersvoice.net to find more great content, including web-only features like book recommendations and extended interviews. Last year, we sat down to talk with a prolific writer, Simon Winchester, about his book, Land. Here's an excerpt from that conversation. Land, whether meadow or mountainside, parkland or pasture, suburb or city. It's central to our existence. It quite literally underlies and underpins everything. In his new book, Land, Simon Winchester examines what we human beings are doing and have done with the billions of acres that together make up the solid surface of our planet. He looks at how we acquire land, how we steward it, how and why we fight over it, and finally, how we can come to share it. Simon Winchester is the author of more books than I can count. Among them are the best-selling The Professor and the Madman, Pacific, and A Crack in the Edge of the World. We've spoken with Winchester about the last two previously on Writer's Voice. Simon Winchester, welcome back to Writer's Voice. It's been a long time, and I'm so thrilled to be talking with you again. Well, me too. It's been a while, but thank you for having me. So, now you have a very distinct voice, and it's really, I have to say, it's a pleasure to inhabit the hallways of your mind. Uh, this is your 15th nonfiction book, is that correct? Something like that. I mean, I think the total is sort of rather vulgarly sort of 32 or something, but a lot of them fell by the wayside before The Professor and the Madman in 98. And then since then, they've become so, somewhat more apparent. But there were books before then. And of course, such is the way with publishing that old books from years ago that were deemed not tremendously popular 
were suddenly reconfigured and reissued and have done reasonably well. So now I think it's 31 or 32. Wow, that's amazing. Um, we've talked with you before about oceans. You've written about the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean in two different books. You've written about volcanoes, earthquakes, scientists of various sorts. Now, land. What guides you in picking your subjects? Well, a variety of things, really. Sometimes one book leads naturally to another. I mean, for instance, back in the the days of The Professor and the Madman, my editor, the late, beloved and long lamented, Larry Ashmead said, what characterizes this book is a, a series of criteria. Can you think of anybody else that has those same criteria? And weren't you once a geologist? And that led me from writing about W.C. Minor and the making of the Oxford English Dictionary to a chap called William Smith and the construction of the first geological map of anywhere. And, and so and that geology book, I think, led to Krakatoa because someone said, well, why don't we see if there are any more stories from geology? And that led to the San Francisco earthquake. So a variety of, of things. In this particular case, the land book came about largely because of a, a breakfast time discussion my wife and I were having about immigration, of all things, and um, the thought that an awful lot of the people that came to this country in the 1700s came because they'd been dispossessed of their land in England because of the these new fangled laws that have collectively come to be known as the clearances. And that got us thinking, or what is ownership? What were the clearances? What did ownership mean? And so very long-winded reply to your question, but basically a variety of reasons, but normally a discussion followed by a light going off. I wonder if that might be a good subject for a book. Well, this is really a fascinating book, and we will talk about the clearances uh, and the enclosure movement. But you start this book out, Simon Winchester, you start Land Out with your own little patch of land, with buying your own first little patch of land. Tell us about it. It's in Dutchess County, New York. Um, basically, when I re I'd lived in Hong Kong for 13 years, from 85 to 97. And when I decided, because it had been handed over, it was no longer a British colony, and so the story of what would happen when it uh, became rightly back in Chinese hands, the story was effectively done for the time being. So um, where might I go and live? And I could have gone and lived either in Britain, where I come from, or the United States, where I'd been a correspondent. And the New York Times correspondent in Hong Kong at the time, Captain Larry Zuckerman, said that if I lived in New England, I'd had all the sort of attractiveness of the English countryside combined with all the go-and-get-em enthusiasm of the American people. So I thought that was sound and logical. So I came over here and bought a little cottage in a town called Wasaic in um, in Dutchess County, the end, as it happens, of the railway line from Grand Central northwards. And um, that land it just had a few acres, but it was surrounded by a much larger tract of forested land that a its owner, who was a, a plumber from the Bronx, a man called Caesar Luria, 
um, used to come up each season and hunt for deer. And he was a very kind, nice man. And he would always leave me a cooler with venison and um, usually a bottle of cognac to thank me for any disturbance he might have caused. He never caused any, but it's a way of saying thank you. And then he came to me one year and said, quite honestly, he paid taxes on this land, but he only came up two or three years, three, two or three times a year. So maybe I'd like to buy it. It wasn't much use to him and it surrounded my house. And I thought, yes, and he named a price. So all of a sudden I own a hundred and, I think it was about 140 acres. It's, um, I, it wasn't very useful land. It was mostly on the north facing side of a mountain. So it was mostly sloping. There were a couple of little rivers, there, but beautiful trees, oak and ash and pine, of course, in abundance, and lots of wildlife, deer, of course, um, but also, you know, um, raccoons and possums and rabbits. And I was enchanted by it, but didn't think in depth about it until 2011, when I became a citizen of this country and um, took the oath on the after deck of the USS Constitution in Boston Harbor. And the I found the ceremony, as most people who immigrate to this country do, intensely moving. And it suddenly occurred to me that I was now, because of the ownership of this land, quite literally invested in the country of which I'd just become a citizen. So I became more interested in it and would go, by this time I had moved up to more sensible, in other words, horizontal land up in Massachusetts, but I had kept, not the cottage, but I had kept the land in Dutchess County. And I would go down and visit it. And then I was sort of amazed, awed, if you like, at the concept of owning. I mean, that I would fall to my knees, if you like, I'm not sure that I ever did that, but sift the soil through my fingers and think, I own this, I own that tree and that rabbit is on my property. So I started looking into the history of who had owned it, had owned it before me, obviously Mr. Luria, and who had, he had bought it from, and way back into the, which the records are extremely good, back into the 20th century, 19th, 18th, then they became handwritten records, and then they became ragged and often indecipherable, but all the way back to the early part of the 17th century, when the documents were written not in English, but in Dutch. And they were the indications that the first explorers of this land, European explorers, that is, had been Hollanders, led by um, Henry Hudson, of course, although he was British, he was leading in 1609 a, a Dutch expedition. And they would take land from the people who lived there. And these people, the documents were still to be found in the archives, which showed a you know, flourish of a Dutch signature, and then an X or a little sketch of a, a deer or some antlers or something like that, which was the mark made by the people from whom the Dutchman took this land. And these were the Mohican Indians. So had it been further south, it would have been the Lenape. Further north, it would have been the Iroquois, the Mohawk. But these were the Mohican. And in common with most, so far as my research showed anyway, most Native Americans, the Mohican had never had the concept of ownership. They'd used the land, they'd superintended it, they'd harvested it, and in very sophisticated ways, it should be said, they'd hunted on it, they'd tended to it, but they'd never thought of owning it. I mean, the idea was, I wouldn't say repugnant to them, but they'd never really conceived it. You could no more own the land 
than you could own the breeze or you could own the ocean. And yet I did, and Mr. Luria did, and people in the 19th century did. So what had happened? What did this concept of ownership mean? And I said to my editor in New York, it sounds like something which could be um, a book. And um, she said, yes, but not if you restrict it to the United States alone. This was back in the day, what, three years ago, when one could travel, if you remember those such heavy <laughs> times. And so she said, travel, go and have a look all around the world and see what ownership means and has meant. And um, then you can write a book about it. And so I did. And I went off to Polynesia and Australia, New Zealand, all over Europe, Britain, where I came from, and of course, all over the United States. And the book is the result. And the book is Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World. We're talking with author Simon Winchester. So this concept of ownership, as you pointed out, there's a, a real difference between the concept of ownership that the Native Americans had, the, the Mohicans, the people who lived on originally on the land that you ended up buying, and the settlers. You know, we can talk about settler colonialism really all over the world. Um, and the idea of land ownership versus the use of land was also true of New Zealand. And you really tell an amazing story about the Maori because there is a question now who the land belongs to, the settlers or the Maori. So give us a, the overview of that story and then tell us what's going on today. New Zealand is the most recently settled by anyone that is part of the world. I mean, the Polynesians, who are now the Maori, who occupy it now, only came in the 1300s, 1400s, so 700 years of human occupation. And quite happily and contentedly, Captain Cook was the first to, quote, discover, unquote, them. And um, it was interesting to note that when he left England on this great expedition in which he went to Australia and all over, Polynesia and New Zealand, that he was specifically charged by his patron not to take any of the lands anywhere. These belong to the people who already live there. It's often thought that Cook was a sort of an instigator of settler colonialism. In fact, he wasn't. He was there sort of intellectually more, and particularly Joseph Banks, the botanist who went with him to see who the people were and how interesting and sophisticated they were in their manner of civilization, manner of living. It was almost an anthropological expedition. But anyway, it didn't lead to that sort of thing. It led to white men coming initially from France and then from England to say, gosh, this is beautiful countryside. Let's let's be having it, if you like. And the, the, the concept, um, basically the legal concept, was that if you come across a chunk of territory anywhere in the world and there are no people there, then it is regarded in law as being terra nullius, to use the Latin phrase, land that belongs to no one. And so you can take it. But of course, there were people in New Zealand, there were people in Australia, there were people in North America. But the sort of intellectual conceit of the settler colonialists was that they may have looked like people, but they weren't people. 
particularly, I mean, let's just go back for a moment to Native Americans. I dedicate the book to this conquer chief, magnificent man called Standing Bear, who, highly sophisticated, intelligent man, who went to the Supreme Court in 1879 and said, I want to be declared to be, with all my brothers and sisters, a human being entitled to the civil rights that other human beings on this continent are afforded. And the Supreme Court in a landmark decision said, yes, Native Americans are human beings at long last, because hitherto, justifying this concept of terra nullius, they were regarded as groundhogs or rabbits or whatever, officially, legally. I might add that it wasn't until the 1920s that Native Americans were given the vote, which still considered considering that this is, quote, their country. Um, but anyway, back to New Zealand, much the same thing was happening. <clears throat> the early settlers for these Maori and in, in law regard them as human beings. And so in 1840, um, when it was decided officially this should become British territory, the famous or infamous Treaty of Waitangi was signed, a little village up in the North Island of New Zealand. And various, I think it was about 60, representatives of different Maori families and tribes came and signed the document. And then British colonial officials spent six months wandering around the country, getting others to sign this document. And that became the basis of New Zealand, because then that document said all the land, which hitherto had been property of or was superintended or inhabited by the Maori, now belonged to Queen Victoria, far away, a woman who never went to New Zealand, but she owned New Zealand. Well, that essentially obtained uh, most of New Zealand's history until the mid-1970s, when this formidable lady, um, it looks her name is spelled Wiener Cooper, but it's actually pronounced Wiener Cooper, in her early 80s, a Maori woman, led a campaign which actually resulted in a march from the very far northern peninsula of the North Island down to the capital in Wellington, saying, this is ridiculous. We want our land back. And oddly enough, or perhaps not oddly because of the nature of the New Zealand government at the time, the government said, let's talk. Let's talk about it. In other words, didn't take the same attitude that Americans have or Canadians have or Australians have, which is a story, you missed the boat. Um, it's our land now. And so two bodies were set up, the Maori Land Court and the Waitangi Tribunal. And hearings have been held now since the 1970s and 1980s that have resulted in substantial tracts of land, notably a lot of the New Zealand seashore, being given back to its original, quote, owners, unquote. And so in that sense, New Zealand is providing a model which all of us, all of us in settler colonial societies should, in my view, look at, because there has been no sort of revolutionary upset in the, New, in the fabric of New Zealand as a country. It is one of the happiest countries on earth. But what have they done? When I first went there in the, gosh, it must have been the 1980s, I suppose, it was like England set in the South Seas. It was all afternoon tea and lawn bowls and cricket, daffodils. It was, the national anthem was God Save the Queen. It was 
England. But now the country's name, just its name, has changed. It's New Zealand, yes, but also Aotearoa. Aotearoa is the Polynesian word, land of the long white cloud, because when you saw it from the canoes, it was a long white cloud over it. So Aotearoa slash New Zealand, the New Zealand national anthem, God Defend New Zealand, first verse of which is sung not in English, but in Maori. All the road signs are in Maori now, and the Maoris are getting their land back. It seems an absolutely ideal situation, not the kind of situation which would find favour here in the United States, as I know to my cost here in Massachusetts, because the attempts to give land back to its original owners are resisted fiercely here. Yes, they are. But, you know, it is interesting that it's becoming more and more customary to refer to the ancestral owners of the land we're on. For example, when I participate in, let's say, organizing meetings of the Long Island Climate Justice Group, you know, I introduce myself as living on Montaukett land. And that's becoming more and more of a of a convention, which is perhaps just the beginning. And hopefully it will not just end there, but just the beginning of an awareness that this land was not ours originally. I really hope you're right. I mean, I'm, for my sins, moderator of this little town, Sandisfield in the Berkshires. And um, I am an elected official, so I mean, I'm up for election again in, in May. Every time I begin the town meeting, or when we have the occasional special town meeting, the same thing, I do allegiance, which of course, being an Englishman, I had to learn. But then immediately afterwards say to the people who are all sort of beginning to sit, sit down, I said, no, please remain standing for a moment while we remember that these lands originally are the lands of the Mohican people and that we should respect their ultimate sovereignty and that we are there here as their guests. And at first, there was a great deal of resistance, but not enough for me to be de defeated the next time I ran. So... Um, I think you're absolutely right. This is gaining some traction, particularly in the Northeast. Whether it'll gain traction in, let's say, Oklahoma, center, if you like, of uh, white entitlement and a disdain for uh, Indian claims, I don't know. But I think you're absolutely right. It's a start. And we should thank New Zealand for who, who have done this as a matter of course for the last 20 years. I think New Zealand and Australia um, bear some um, responsibility for it. Simon Winchester talking with us in 2021 about his book, Land. Go to writersvoice.net to hear the rest of that conversation. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Be sure to visit us at writersvoice.net to find out who's coming on next week, listen to archive shows, and leave your comments and suggestions. That's www.writersvoice.net. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Francesca Rhiannon.